You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. The teaching text comes from Matthew 2, 1 through 2, 9 through 11. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan Diaz, and I am the new discipleship pastor here at Oaks. <laughs> it is an honor and a privilege to be a part of this community. Thank you so much for welcoming my wife and I. And it is my honor to bring Advent to a close with a homily on the gift of myrrh. For those of you who may be joining for the first time, we've been exploring the symbolic meanings of the gift presented by the Magi. And even if you're new to Christianity or, or, or you're exploring, the, the Christmas story is somewhat familiar. It's in the cultural ethos this time of year. You know, have you ever watched the famous like claymation, the Rankin and Bass little drummer boy? Well, that, that's, a, that's a retelling of the story of the Magi. If you just happen to be driving by in any small town in America and you see the image of the manger and the nativity scene, you'll see three men dressed in royal robes bowing before an infant child. In fact, the gift exchange we do on Christmas Day when we gather together and we present gifts to our loved ones is a reenactment of the Magi's own giving of gifts to the Christ child teaching us that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And the Magi themselves are, are, are archetypes. They are symbolic representations of us. We come to Christ, and we, in his presence, we understand that he is king and give him his due. St. Anselm, the great Christian theologian, said this, In these offerings, the gifts, we observe their national customs. Gold, frankincense, and various spices abounding among the Arabians. Yet they intended thereby to signify something in mystery. Throughout the history of Christian interpretation, these gifts, the, the gifts presented by the Magi, held symbolic significance. That these weren't just ordinary gifts. They weren't gifts given in happenstance, but they mystically symbolized some deeper spiritual truth. St. Augustine said this, gold as paid to a mighty king, frankincense as offered to God, 
myrrh as to one who is to die for the sins of all. What Augustine is saying here is that these gifts help identify the Christ child. The gold is symbolic of his kingship, that he is the Messiah, the anointed ruler of Israel. The frankincense given is symbolic of his deity, that he is indeed the God of all creation, incarnate in a baby. And myrrh. Myrrh is symbolic of the sacrifice he would make on the cross, prophesying what would happen when nails pierced his hands and a crown of thorns was placed upon his head. Myrrh is symbolic in both Christ's death and his anointing. In the Old Testament, myrrh was used to anoint kings, priests, and prophets. In the New Testament, it is present at Jesus' death where Nicodemus washes his body in an expensive perfume. When the Magi bring the gift of myrrh, they are foretelling what Christ will do in identifying who Christ is. And so the question remains, but what does it mean for us to give the gift of myrrh this Advent season? See, these gifts given don't just symbolize who Christ is, but they say something about our relationship to him. The Pope Gregory I, he said this, he says, in a meditation on the Magi's gifts, he says, to a king at his birth we offer gold if we shine in his sight with the light of wisdom. We offer frankincense if we have power before God by the sweet savor of our prayers. We offer myrrh when we mortify by abstinence the lusts of the flesh. In Christian interpretation, it's commonly agreed upon that we too come symbolically to Christ with these gifts, the gifts of the Magi, and lay them before Christ ourselves. In these past few weeks, we've been talking about what does it mean to give gold to Christ? What does it mean to lay down our finances and our resources so we can acknowledge him as our king? We've explored what it looks like to give frankincense, to give worship, to lay all down at his feet. And now we must ask ourselves, what does it mean to offer Christ our death? See, myrrh is symbolic of death. The English word mortify has its roots in the Latin word mortificare, which means to put to death. What does it mean for us to lay down our lives? How is that a gift we give to Christ? See, the Christian invitation has always been a paradoxical one. Life through death. Or as Jesus says, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The gift of myrrh is the gift of self-denial the daily dying that marks the Christian life. St. Paul frames it this way in the letter to the Philippians. Yet whatever gains I had, these I come to regard as a loss because of Christ. 
More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes from faith through Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. According to St. Paul, knowing Christ is the chief satisfaction of the human existence. That there is nothing in this world, no, no resource, no award, no relationship, no thing that surpasses knowing Christ. Everything else pales in comparison with an intimate relationship with Jesus. And so... The question is, how do we come to that deep, intimate knowledge of Christ? How do we come to know him fully, even as we are fully known? And the answer is death. See, Paul has a train of logic here. He says he wants to know Christ, but he must first share in the sufferings of Christ. That Paul, in order to know Christ more deeply and more profoundly, must participate in Christ's death so that he might experience his resurrection life. To know Christ, to know him intimately and deeply, is to participate in what he did when he was here on earth with us. To die like him, to be raised like him so that we may know him. Self-denial is the road to Christ. Self-denial is the road to an intimate knowledge of who he is, an entrance into the mystery of God where we are enraptured and enwrapped by his love so that we know him all the more. But this doesn't happen unless we die. And this is the great paradox of the gift of myrrh, self-denial. In that the gift we give is the gift of losing everything so that we might gain everything. To know Christ is to gain everything. All other things are a loss. And this Advent season, as we kind of turn the bend this fourth Sunday of Advent and come to Christmas, we must ask ourselves, do I truly want to know Christ? And if so, am I willing to die? The Eastern Orthodox fathers talk about this concept of theosis, or union with God. And it's this process of becoming like God. Not, not becoming God himself, but participating in his love, in his divine attributes. Participating in his peace, in his justice, in his mercy, and his joy. And as we become like him, we actually become more like ourselves. See, this is the great mystery of sanctification. That as I die to myself and become like God, I become more myself. 
I abandon the shadow self that tells me who I am and I accept that the only definition that truly matters is who Christ defines me as and this is it, this is the mystery. In becoming like God, we don't become less human, we become more human, truly alive. But the price is death. The self-sacrifice, the self-denial, the daily dying we each have been called to The daily rejection of self actually leads to the realization of self. That it's only in God and in his divine life, only in his love do we actually become who we truly are. The question remains, what part of us needs to die? I want to put to rest some of the illusions we have about what dying to self means. I think often this concept has been misinterpreted that Christianity is a complete denial of identity or personhood. That in becoming, the, in becoming a Christian, we become automatons. We just, we lose all sense of our personality, all sense of what makes us who we are so that we can become these vague, nebulous, little Christs. But that's actually not the answer. That's not what happens. That's a mischaracterization of what we're talking about here. See, by entering into the mystery of Christ and dying to self, we are not losing ourselves and losing what makes us who we are. We're actually adding to who we are. See, God has made you in his image, and you are a beautiful, wonderful representation of that image, but that image needs restoration. It needs fixing. And so the the goal of the Christian life is not to completely abandon every part of you who makes you who you are. Your story matters. Where you're from matters. Your family matters. Your history matters. All that matters because God came into history and sanctified it. And so God wants to do the same with you. He wants to enter into your story, not to erase it, but to bring it to its completion. But we have to die. Some part of ourselves needs to be eliminated. And what is that self? Well, Thomas Merton calls it the false self. He says this, Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. And we are not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves. The false self is a shadow self. It's made up of the lies we believe about ourselves. Lies like, I am what I do. Or I am my relationships. Or I am my wealth. Or I am my passions. I am my desires. I am what others say I am. I am what I say I am. These are the illusory lies that make up the false self. It's these lies that find its core in the first lie ever told. You will be like God. See, it's actually when we try to develop an identity for ourselves where we actually lose what makes us really human. It's when Adam and Eve listened to the serpent's words and instead of being creatures, try to be creators, that they lose their humanity. This is the self that needs to die. Not the beautiful image of God-bearing self implanted into you at your creation, 
but the false self we have created to try to be like a God, defining good and evil for ourselves. The false self is the false self that needs to come to an end. The lies we tell about ourselves, the lies we believe about ourselves, the self we have constructed to feel safe and at home in the world, the the self we have constructed to avoid dealing with the God who is calling us to himself. See, only by dying to the false self, by denying the false self, can we actually become our true selves. Thomas Merton goes on to say, God himself begins to live in us, not only as our creator, but as our other and true self. This is why Paul can say, it is not I, but Christ who lives in me. The true self is the indwelt by the Spirit of God. The true self comes alive because the Holy Spirit dwells within bringing to life those dead things that have been killed off by the false self and bringing to life the true self. See, the true self is one who is united with God. The true self is one motivated by love and is moving towards love. The true self is full of love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The true self says, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Our true self is one rooted in God's divine love, the love shown to us in Jesus. The true self is the new humanity. This is what Jesus became for us. Jesus is a the first of a new creation, the first of many brothers and sisters, a new humanity, no longer distorted by the false lies we tell ourselves, but truly alive because we've accepted the truth about ourselves, that we are gods and gods alone. But we have to put on the true self. I think, you know, depending on the Christian tradition you grew up in, we talk a lot about conversion moments. And these moments are often stories of these miraculous transformations. And while those stories are beautiful and meaningful and have incredible value, what they don't do is sustain us for the continual transformation that is required of us. Paul says this, Now this I infirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lust, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, the Christian life is not just one about one miraculous conversion moment, but a lifestyle of conversion, continual conversion moments that happen daily in the little decisions we make, in the mundane, in the not so obvious, not, in the, not always in the grandiose and the big, but in the little moments of 
daily decision that require us to either decide, will we embrace our true selves or give in to the false self? Will we die or will we try to hold on to our lives? See, what Paul is getting at is that you know what it is to live for Christ. Now you just have to do it. Now you just have to put on that new self. This is the mystery of sanctification, that it is both a complete work of God, and yet we somehow participate in it. So daily, the decision arises, will I put on the true self? And the, the reality is, is that we often fail at it, and we often fail at it because we think it's just something that happens. But growth is always intentional. It is a byproduct of intentionality. It's why farmers measure the seasons, because you can't just plant at any time. You can't just harvest at any time. You have to do daily things to ensure that there's growth. And so Paul calls us to the same thing. See, according to St. Paul, the putting off of the old self requires a rule of life that challenges the false self, kills it, puts it to death, and affirms the true self. At our church, we have something called the good way. It's a rule of life. And it's actually this rule of life that actually is a rule of life that challenges the false self and affirms the true self. When we embrace daily rhythms of prayer, live lives rooted in scripture, partake in Sabbath rest, practice simplicity and generosity, embody hospitality, participate in the family of Jesus, and pursue justice, peace, and maturity, we create a life in which we consistently put to death the false self and embrace the true self. This is how we should live, to become a people who have so adopted a way of life that every day is a daily participation in what Jesus is already doing inside of us. The intentionality that goes into the growth. But again, this is not something you just do. See, the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit is working in us to will and to do. And so, while we may create a rule of life to help aid in our growth, to help aid in our daily dying, it is only the power of the Spirit indwelt in every believer that actually can put to death the false self and raise to life the true self. And it's this Advent where we must consider to ask the Holy Spirit for help to become the people God is calling us to be, to say, God, I give you the gift of my life and in turn receive the lives we were always meant to live. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, and I think it's appropriate as Christmas nears. He says, who will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism, beside the manger. This season, as Christmas approaches, we have a chance to lay down our lives beside the manger, to be the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth magi coming down the line, presenting our gifts to the infant Christ and saying, I am humble enough to bow before a baby. I'm wise enough to lay down my life a king. This is what it means to give the gift of myrrh.
to die to self so that we actually might live. And this is why God's grace is so astounding. Because even in the gifts we give, he gives infinitely more. Even in the dying to self and the laying down of the, of the lives we constructed, God is giving us infinitely more in return. And we can give this gift because Christ first gave it himself. God is not like one of the pagan gods of old who need to be wooed or tamed with our sacrifice. No, the Christian God says, I will become your sacrifice. And any sacrifice you give of me is out of an overflow of love and appreciation for what I've done. In fact, I will daily die with you and daily raise with you so that you might have life and life more abundantly. In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table and partake in the Lord's Supper. It's actually in this meal that we witness the dying and rising of God. See, when Jesus gave us this meal, he gave us a meal to represent his own sacrifice of himself. And as we take this meal, we are reminded and empowered to die to self. That this meal is not just an ordinary meal, it's not just a representation of a memory, but it is a participation in Christ's death so that we can die and then begin to truly live. And so I'm going to read us the passage we often come to when we take communion. Then I'll lead us in our communion and then pray for us. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he comes. In a moment, I'll pray for us and we'll take the elements. So I take this time to get those things ready. But the final question I leave you with is what needs to die? What needs to be laid down? What false self needs to be put to death? How can you give the gift of myrrh this Christmas? And so with that said, Allow me to pray for us, and then we can worship together. God, we cry to you this morning. Help us to pray and gather our thoughts. We cannot do it alone. It is dark inside us, but you do not leave us. 
We are timid, but with you is our help. We are anxious, but with you is peace. There's bitterness inside us, but with you is patience. We do not understand your ways, but you know the right way for us. Lord Jesus Christ, you were poor and miserable, caught and abandoned like us. You know all the sorrow of humanity, and you stay with us when nobody stays with us. You do not forget us. You search for us. You want us to recognize you and turn to you. Lord, we hear your call and follow. Help us. In Christ's name, amen. Church, we love you. Merry Christmas.